a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to British TV podcast show number 25. Hello, hello. I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. How you doing, Chrissy? I'm all right. What'd you do this week? I've been working a lot still, but last week for the pledge drive for a while, so Thursday and Saturday, and then I'm off for a few months, so that's good. And I got tickets to go see Eddie Azard. Where is he going to be? He's going to be in Vancouver at the Queen Elizabeth Theater, where I haven't been for about 20 years since I saw Phantom there, so. How many cities is he doing in North America? He's not doing... This is kind of um, Canadian-only sort of... I think it's just a few weeks, you know... A week in Toronto and a couple nights here and there, a night in Victoria, two in Vancouver sort of thing. Well, because it's lucky we live close to the Canadian yeah, border. it is, because he did his, he's still calling the show Stripped, and which was played in Seattle about two years ago, so he's been doing it on and off for quite a long time. Well, cool. Yes, 10th row, not bad, so... I just happened to look at just the right time and found the pre-show password, which is generally bees. And me like bzzz. Yeah. Oh. So got our tickets, so that should be fun. Cool. Take, I'm taking my sister. I participated in a Doctor Who trivia night last week that was put on by Seattle Geekly. A, Did you win? A podcast. I came in third. Oh. But that's pretty good because my team pretty much was me, my wife, and a friend of ours. And I was up against about a dozen other teams, mostly filled with four or five super fans each. There was one team that we were actually scoring their answers, and they were awesome. They knew everything. They would yeah. write little parenthetical comments afterwards just to show <laughs> off. But I felt good because I answered one question that nobody else there knew. And they had photographs of actors, and I'm the only person who could identify Bruno Langley. Okay. So he played Adam Mitchell. This was all new Doctor Who questions. Oh, just yeah. 2005. With thing See, in his head. Yeah. yeah. So you might have done pretty well on this. I don't know. Held my own and handed out lots of flyers for the podcast, which I think are working because our downloads are way up in the last couple of weeks. And I promoted this at the Emerald City Comic Con. Cool. And then at this thing with a lot of Doctor Who fans, I would just walk up and say, you like British TV, right? They go, yeah. And I hand them a flyer. Here, listen to my podcast. So welcome new listeners. Welcome. What's really interesting is a lot of people are downloading our back catalog. Episode one is one of our top 10 downloads. You know, we've got 20, well, 24, 25 shows. People are going back and listening to the old shows. Wow. When we were in, we were teenagers back when it started, so. Not hardly. All right. But I've gone back and listened to some of those, and they, you know, they're not bad. The features definitely hold up. Some of the news is probably not quite as newsy as it could have been. Uh, I hope people are enjoying those old ones and catching up with our new ones. All righty. We mentioned last week that the Ruth Rendell Mysteries had come out on DVD, and you discovered something interesting about them. I did, and I didn't follow up into what you asked me about it, too, but I did notice that a very celebrated episode, um, they did a production based on a Ruth Rendell mystery called No Night is Too Long. It was 2002, and starred Lee Williams, who at that point had been a Calvin Klein, he was just sort of the look of the late 90s, early 2000s model, but he hadn't done a lot of acting yet. And he was the lead and Mark Warren was in it. And people who've seen it just rave about it. If you go to YouTube, you can see the whole thing. It's posted in chunks. There are fan videos and it's been left off the box set. 
So I was curious if because the main characters were gay, if that might have been a reason of leaving it off. I can't imagine it would be, but it just seemed a a weird thing to skip. If you go to the INDB, there's people for years now saying, where can I get this? I want to buy it. And it's, I think it's available in some non-English speaking country only and with subtitles. Also, it has no Region 1 or Region 2 release, Mm -mm. huh? No. Weird. Maybe there's some rights thing. Maybe they made it and they suddenly discovered that that particular story had been sold off to somebody else so they could show it on British TV, but they couldn't clear the rights for a DVD release. Yeah, if you just Google it at all, you'll see that people who have seen it absolutely love it. And it's one of those things that does kind of stick with you. It's very atmospheric, beautifully photographed. A lot of it takes place in Alaska with really beautiful scenery. Well, maybe the box set sells well, they'll make something happen. Could be. How strange. So Ashes to Ashes is coming back next week, but instead of being early in the week, it's going to be on Friday nights, which has not traditionally been a time when the BBC runs drama series. They tend to put Mm. the quiz shows in there, Have I Got News For You and QI. So it's a bit of an experiment with terror with the BBC to put this somewhat popular show on the graveyard shift. I think they're counting on the fact that a lot of people nowadays are using iPlayer. And catching shows that way, so they just they can put anything they want on the schedules and pick, figure if people really want to see it, they will catch it. Mm-hmm. But hopefully that won't affect the ratings too bad. I completely missed this last week, but Jessica Hines and Julie Davis had a pilot shown last week in the 11.45 p.m. slot on a Saturday night on BBC Two. Talk about graveyard slots. It was called Lizzie and Sarah, and the reason it was on so late was apparently it turned out a bit darker than the BBC was expecting. A reviewer said, The humor is brutal enough to make Nighty Night look like you've been framed, but there are moments of cruelty so biting that it's hard to know whether to laugh or cry. It's funny, inventive, and angry comedy, and there's little that can compare. I saw the trailer. It had Mark Heap and Kevin Eldon. Mark Heap, that's good, because he's been kind of vocal and about being kind of sad that he's been left off Simon Pegg's and Edgar's projects since Spaced, when so many of the other people who are in it have been he's, asked to play parts here and there. He's so. doing okay. He's a regular on Lark Rise to Candleford, and he was in Green Wing. He's, he's doing just fine. So in Lizzie and Sarah, they're late middle-aged ladies, so they're wearing old age makeup and white wigs, and then there's flashbacks to them being younger, and apparently their husbands are unfaithful, and they decide to get revenge. So we just talked about Jessica Hines a couple of weeks ago, and yeah. she was popping up with something that we was kind of under our radar. That really was, because the last I read about her project with Juliet was on hold because they'd done their little web series for the radio slash webisodes, and it took more time than they had expected, and Julia wasn't sure she wanted to do any TV right now because she's got young twins, but I guess they decided to go ahead after all. This pilot looked pretty elaborate, at least according to the trailer that I saw. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was not three people in a studio. It was, you know, filmed on location, lots of scenes and people running around and stuff like that. So I'm sure you'll get your uh, hands on it real soon. Oh, yeah. Sorry we didn't put that in our schedule last week. It completely slipped me by. So this week's episode, we have news, what's on British TV this week, what's running in the United States, DVD releases, and a feature on actor Philip Glenester. News. The Stars Pay Cable Channel will co-produce a new Irish-Canadian co-production, Camelot, to debut in 2011. Based on the 15th century book, La Morte d'Arthur, 
by Thomas Mallory, the series will attempt to make it, quote, relatable to contemporary audiences. Some of these same producers are currently working on Showtime's The Tudors. ITV1 will screen England's first two World Cup group games against the USA and Algeria when the tournament begins in South Africa in June, with the BBC showing the national team's first two knockout matches. Should the team progress that far, BBC One will also show the third group game against Slovenia in the afternoon on Wednesday, June 23rd, ITV1 will expect to get big audiences for the Saturday evening match against the USA, which will kick off at 7.30 p.m. UK time on June 12th. So Doctor Who fans, don't worry. The BBC will no doubt make sure that the episode that week is over by 7.30 in what is sure to be a ratings juggernaut that night. I am really looking forward to the USA-England match. That should be really cool. And uh, yeah, it'll get huge ratings Mm -hmm. over in Britain. Yes, World Cup fever, it's coming, and we'll talk about that as it gets closer. I once watched on BBC World, I was in the Netherlands, I was in Harlem in Holland, and France had just won the World Cup, and my grandmother had just joined me in Europe. I was treating her to two weeks, her first and only time ever in Europe, and we watched hundreds of thousands of French people on the Champs-Élysées just celebrating this World Cup and the next day we went to France and we were just amazed how quickly they had cleaned up and were taking down seating and everything else. But there were armed military officers on guard in all the, the um, train and metro stations in case people wanted to keep celebrating and got a little out of hand. So it was kind of odd coming out of Gary Nord and seeing people with machine guns <laughs> strapped to their side standing at the metro exit. Entrance is like, okay, everybody, party's over. The first time I ever saw someone holding a machine gun was mm-hmm. in Heathrow Airport. And it was an yeah. SAS guy because this was in the late 80s when the IRA was still active. And I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. definitely Yeah, security. my poor grandmother, she didn't know what to make of it. And Gray Nord's a little bit sleazy, too. But then I took her off to where we were staying. And she ended up liking Paris more than anywhere else that I took her. But that was not a really good introduction for the 77-year-old poor thing. Yeah, I used to trade tapes with a guy in Germany, and he said he lived in a little tiny town on a dead-end street, you know, really quiet, and then Germany won the World Cup, and he says he opened his window up, and it was just like people were going crazy like it was New Year's. He said, wow, you know, I live in a quiet place, and people are very excited. So World Cup fever is going to be very interesting, and of course, they're all playing, as we said, down in South Africa. So what's on TV for the week of March 24th to the 30th? Wednesday... The poorly reviewed Carolyn Quinton's sitcom, The Life of Riley, continues on BBC One. Would they ever completely yank a show if it was just tanking oh, gosh, on yes. the BBC? Okay. There was a, a show called All Along the Watchtower. It was kind of a Scottish comedy about guards in a remote RAF base. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of weeks, they stuck it on Sunday afternoons. So yeah, they will tinker with the schedules of things they're doing poorly. I think the ratings on it are doing okay. It's just people just kind of like... This is, seems like a very throwback to 1970s shows. But again, it's meant for family audiences and it's on early in the evening. So it is what it is. All right. On BBC Four at 9 p.m., the documentary series Time Shift takes a look at the history of bread in Bread, a Loaf Affair, narrated by Tom Baker and peopled by bakers, millers, and food writers who all turn out to be dry cards or eccentric sages as it tells the story of the wheat grain. Well, speaking as a bread maker myself, that sounds awesome. 
should watch that while making bread so you have that nice fresh bread yeah, smell. That's can... the best part of making bread is the smell. Thursday, Alan Carr Chatty Man finishes its run on Channel 4 with guests Boy George, Kim Cattrall, and hip-hop group N-Dubs perform. On BBC Three, the second season of Russell Howard's Good News returns where Howard is filmed weekly in front of a studio audience putting his own spin on big or quirky stories in the news. The first season scored the highest ratings for an entertainment program for BBC Three, so it's no surprise that it's back. They've already commissioned a third series, too. Friday, QI is back on the schedule with a look at Green and panelists Jeremy Clarkson, Bill Bailey, Danny Baker, and Alan Davis. 8.30 p.m. on BBC One. Also back after a break on BBC Two is David Mitchell's The Bubble, where celebrities spend a week in isolation and then are quizzed about the week's news stories. I saw it and I thought it was a bit dull. It was like watching Radio 4 or NPR. The best bits were the scenes of what they did to pass the time together in the house, which is uh, kind of explains why Big Brother is so popular. Are they baking bread? No, they played games and Aww. just did things because, of course, they didn't have TV or anything like that. Yeah, they, they would manufacture these fake news stories and they'd have to watch them and figure out which one was real. And apparently, David Mitchell's been complaining that he can't get the cooperation of the BBC News Department. So they have to do their own clips uh, and everything. So you just look for newscasters you don't recognize on Choose That Way? Yes. Ah. Oh, well, perhaps the BBC News readers are a bit busy. We'll see. I like David Mitchell, though. I haven't watched the show yet, so... If they get a particularly good episode, I will. ITV goes for what it calls a variety event, Comedy Rocks with Jason Manford, with music, comedy, and even a ventriloquist act. It's on 9 p.m. Friday night. BBC One has Friday night with Jonathan Ross, joined by Emma Thompson, Matt Smith. Who's that? The new Doctor Who. Oh. And music from Goldfrap. Yes, Rossi is... A huge Doctor Who fan. I'm sure he'll be gushing all over Matt Smith. He's probably seen the first episode of the press launch and will be telling how great it is. So he's a super fan. Yep. Saturday, Harry Hill's TV burp is on ITV1. And they said it would never happen. But on Sunday, Lark Rise to Candleford finally finishes its run on BBC One at last. The Candleford post office is under threat with the approach of the railways and the villagers rally to the cause, but they may be too late. On BBC Four, Paul Merton's Weird and Wonderful World of Early Cinema, a documentary look at silent film pioneers in the pre-World War I Britain and France. That sounds cool. Yeah, I wonder if he's touring with that, because he did a series on the silent comedians, Lester Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, and he also toured and showed restored prints of some of the original films with live accompaniment, and then he would speak before and after and, and talk about historically why these were important my understanding was the point of this series was to get it away from hollywood and focus on european Mm -hmm. early cinema monday bang goes the theory is on bbc one married single other wraps up on itv one tuesday law and order uk is on itv one and shameless continues on channel four what i discovered last week is they run a new episode on channel four and immediately afterwards you can switch over to e4 and see the next episode so you can Watch two episodes in a row every two weeks. That's what I'd do. If I'm downloading a series, I tend to save it up and then have a good old evening devoted to something. I watched uh, Secret Diary of a Call Girl in two sessions, the first four and then the uh, second series of four episodes. Mm. 
On BBC America this week, it's another schedule shuffle. Survivors is now on Tuesdays with the second season. Friday night, it's chat show night with Friday night with Jonathan Ross and the Graham Norton Show. Monday, it's Top Gear. Wednesday and Saturday, it's Channel 4's high school comedy, The Inbetweeners. Sunday on PBS's Masterpiece Classic will be Sharp's Challenge. This time for sure! This two-hour adventure stars Sean Bean and was shot entirely on location in India. The Discovery Channel continues the documentary series Life on Sunday. 33.8 million people watched the first episode last week, says Ryan. So it says a press release from the Discovery Channel. I think they add the repeats and time shifters as well there. The Independent Film Channel runs the sketch comedy series Wrong Door, Tuesday and Saturday nights. On Adult Swim, on Friday night, starting at midnight is a double helping of The Mighty Boosh, followed by The Office, and then Look Around You. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is at 5 a.m. Saturday morning. DVD releases. Crodman Dune and the Flaming Sword of Fire. This set features the uncut BBC versions of the sword and sorcery spoof that ran on Comedy Central last year. Among the changes are six minutes of extra material each episode, and the original narrator in the British version was Michael Gambone, replaced by a generic American voiceover artist in the U.S. version. My wife and I liked this series. It was goofy, but it was fun. Matt Lucas was one of the stars. Yeah, I knew that. I hadn't seen it. It's always better to have the British original versions, I found. Yeah, I was quite surprised when I saw the BBC Two versions, and they were a lot longer. So be kind of like the difference of watching Blackadder, the originals, versus the ones carved up on arts and entertainment way back in the oh, early 80s. I remember that. I had a friend who had PAL copies, so he made camera copies with them and then cut in the cutout bits. So it would go NTSC, NTSC, scene in PAL, flicker, 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 and back to NTSC, NTSC as you were watching it. He spent so much time on these, and of course now you can just buy the DVD, but it made him happy. I remember specifically when Blackadder Goes Forth came out, I'd gotten the, the PAL episodes, and then they ran on A&E, I would watch an episode, and then I immediately would pull out my PAL copy, I would watch it, and I would make notes of all the scenes that had been cut out, and I published them in a zine that I was doing at the time. Yeah, pretty incredible. Also on DVD is the 2009 remake of The Prisoner with Jim Caviezel and Ian McKellen. Reviewed this back in show number seven, basically calling it uninspired and unnecessary by the original 60s version. And on to the feature this week, which is on actor Philip Lannister. Yes, you know him best as DCI Gene Hunt in Life and Mars and Ashes to Ashes, which is coming back next week. But Philip is a TV veteran with many credits before becoming a household name playing an un-PC PC. His first television credit was in a 1991 episode of Minder, where he played a character named Greg Hunter. Kind of sounds like Gene Hunt. It does, doesn't it? In 1998, he started appearing in period dramas, the first being Vanity Fair as William Dobbin. Have you seen that? No. Oh, all right. And he's also Gunnar Hobbs in the Hornblower movies with Yoan Griffith. I first started to notice Philip Glenester in Paul Abbott's great anthology series beginning in 2000 called Clocking Off. In this BBC drama about workers at a textile factory, each week it focused on a different character. 
One week it might be the foreman who is having trouble keeping his son out of trouble while trying to keep an affair quiet to his co-worker wife. The next it might be focused on Mac, James McIntosh, the firm's owner, played by Philip, working to save the company when the building lease expires. What was especially clever about the series was the star one week would be a spirit carrier the next. About the only constant element was Philip's character of Mac, the owner, although sometimes he would only appear in a scene or two that was peripheral to the main story that week. In this episode, he was front and center as his wife wants to leave him. I'm not a divorce lawyer. I just represent the company. Companies. What have you done? Mac, I'll talk to you. I will talk to you. I just want this cleared enough first, okay? I promise. <laughs> this is a most unpleasant position to be in. If you just let me state Catherine's... Why'd you leave me alone, for God's sakes? Because you always managed to talk me out of it. If I'd have planned it, I'd have done it differently, but I didn't. So just hear what Robert's... Will you just tell him? She wants to sell the factory. What? What? I want you to buy the building from me. I know it was only a tax dodge, but it's the only thing anywhere with my name on it. I just want something so I can go. Can't have thought this through. If I don't go now, I never will. So? What's he told you? James, I've said nothing. You're another one. You screw in her. Oh, James. Oh, dear God, this is ridiculous. I've said absolutely nothing disloyal to either of you, but you must fake facts. Oh, but Nathan, that's the others! You got the others? You stupid! If it wasn't for all the business we shoved you away, that wanky old firm of yours would have pegged out long since, you two-faced fat bastard. Robert, come on, this is my fault. Come on, he won't touch you. I won't let him touch you. Come on, Robert! Robert! This type of format has been used several times, most recently by Jimmy McGovern in The Street, where a set of characters all living in the same street have a shared world experience by making cameos in each other's stories, tying them all together. Audiences watch series and get invested in them when they can see familiar characters each week. In this hybrid anthology format, you can have strong central performances from a different lead actor each week, and yet the audience has this sense of familiarity because of the supporting cast and recurring characters like Mac and Clocking Off. And your favorite, Leslie Sharp. She played Mac's loyal assistant. We did a profile of her way back in show two. So you've never seen Clocking Off? Hmm? No, haven't. Oh, well, Leslie's in it. I know, there's so much to... I can barely keep up with what's on now, so it's it's there's a wealth of stuff to watch. I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. In 2001's The Hunt, Amanda Holden and Philip start in this ITV two-part drama as a successful young couple who move out to the countryside and join the gentry. The subplot was the fox hunting debate, but mainly it was focused on the local smoothie who has a history of seducing ladies and sets his eye on Amanda. Still like it then? Oh, I love it. Bad for Brixton boy. <laughs> Streatham? One of the nicer parts. It's weird though, I'm used to having neighbours I can see without binoculars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> Wait, do you want these? Uh, oh, put them in there, please, mate. You are sure you want this? It's a bit late to change my mind now, love. This isn't just for me, is it, Rob? No, it's for us. We talked about all this, eh? It's going to be fantastic. New start, new life. 
I'm not walking anyone one. Fresh air and trees and all that country stuff. Stuff? Shit. What? What do they do for nightlife around here? Oh. Right, come on. Somebody I want you to meet. Who? <laughs> He's gorgeous. If you like him, he's yours. Birthday present. Oh, it's not my birthday. In 2003, Philip appeared in State of Play, which we talked about extensively in show 13 when we did our feature on John Sim. Glenester played DCI William Bell, a character not a million miles from Gene Hunt, although it was contemporarily based and he wasn't quite as crude, rude, or socially unacceptable. But in scenes opposite John Sim, it was a glimpse of things to come. That's true, though, although with a little spoiler, he got to arrest John Sim at one point. A lot of Life on Mars fans who were going back to see State of Play thought that was pretty fun. It's been commented on a lot. State of Play is quite awesome. Do try to seek it out. There is a, as we mentioned before, a theatrical version starring Russell Crowe, but try to catch the John Sim original version. It was Russell Crowe and Ben Affleck playing David Morrissey and John Sim's roles, but it was originally supposed to be Ed Norton and Brad Pitt, and they both left the project before it started. They had to delay making it. I was following this because I was kind of interested in it, but I do love, love, love State of Play. My dear Mark Warren plays Dominic Foy. It's one of his favorite roles ever that he's done. Yeah, and John Sim is awesome in it, and David Morrissey. It's really, really great. If you like a lot of inside look at newspapers, Bill Nye, he's the editor. Yeah, he won a BAFTA for that. They said that, and then his role in Love Actually were sort of his climb into A-listness after just years and years of being a very respected character actor. All of a sudden, he, he became a little bit more of a name. I think State of roles. Play did a lot of good for everybody in it. Yeah, it's an excellent, and it's kind of funny, too, if you see the... It finally came out in NTSC um, years after it was out in PAL, but on the NTSC cover, James McAvoy's picture is, is enlarged to make it look like he's one of the stars, and he's he's very much a supporting part. It's, I think it's six hours long, so he's in it a good deal, but he's not one of the leads, but it looks like he might be from the cover. Well, he was DVD. hot at the time because of Atonement and, and the other right, shows that he's exactly. been in. He's another guy who toiled forever in British television, and then suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, he was everywhere. But yeah, he... It just blew my mind how quickly he moved from doing series television to being a movie star in Hollywood as well as doing wonderful films in the UK. It's been surprising. Meteoric, we call that. Mm-hmm. In 2004, Philip got to play a Nazi in Island at War, which recently was released on DVD. This ITV historical drama miniseries was about the German occupation of the Channel Islands during World War II. Mostly populated by British citizens, audiences could see what living under the Nazis might resemble. Now, a friend of mine who lives on Jersey said this, quote, It was not filmed on the island to everyone's dismay. I think it was filmed on the Isle of Man, a place as different to Jersey as the Amazon jungle is to Greenland. <laughs> he was not amused. Now, he noted that while things weren't too bad for the British, the Russian slave laborers brought over to build fortifications suffered nearly a thousand casualties in the work camps on one of the islands. But most of the focus of the series was the interpersonal and often romantic relationships between the Germans and British, with the smooth but sinister Philip Glenester playing the Oberst Heinrich Baron von Rheingarten. And in this scene, he assumes control of the island. How do you do? Good afternoon. I am confused. 
I was informed there were no military on the island. I served in the Great War, sir, at Flanders. I served between wars, uh, no active service, and I'm no longer in the Navy. And still the uniforms. I think you wanted to frighten me. <laughs> not at all, sir. No, not at all. May I present the bailiff of the Isle of St. Gregory, Mr. Francis Lafayette. Baron Heinrich von Rheingarten. Very pleased. James Dorr, senator of the States of St. Gregory. Very pleased to make your acquaintance, gentlemen. The good run of weather we are having. Rather. So, we have the formal business to do, yes? You are to understand that I, Colonel Baron Heinrich von Rheingarten, do this day, 2nd July 1940, claim the island of St. Gregory in the name of the Chancellor of the Third Reich, and that the said island is for this time under the military control of the Deutsche Wehrmacht. Quite clear, Herr Bailiff? Yes. Yes. Good. And you accept? No choice, sir. Quite. So, somewhere to stay. Which is your very best hotel? After also playing a copper in Vincent in 2005, Philip Glenester took on the role that will probably be with him for the rest of his life. DCI Gene Hunt in Life on Mars, the perpetual foil of time-traveling Sam Tyler. Surprise me. What year is it supposed to be? Word in your shell like pal. Big mistake. Yeah? What about this? <laughs> they reckon you got concussion. Well, I couldn't give a tart's dirty cup if half your brains are falling out. Don't ever waltz into my kingdom, acting king of the jungle. Who the hell are you? Gene Hunt, your DCI, and it's 1973, almost dinner time. I'm having oops. It's only been five years since Hunt first stepped out of his cortina into the nation's consciousness in Life in Mars, but the role will follow him for the rest of his career. Not that it seems to bother him. The part was originally sold by his agent as, quote, a cross between Back to the Future and the Sweeney. And it's not a bad description. Are you familiar with the Sweeney? You've told me about it. Yeah, someone got me a copy of the Sweeney just so I could see it. An old uh, Dennis Waterman and John Thaw series about hard-fisted cuffers. So Gene Hunt would be right at home on the Sweeney. Phil Glenester said in an interview, quote, The script's first 14 pages just appeared like a run-of-the-mill cop show. Then you got to page 15 and it was like, bam! Sam Tyler wakes up and suddenly you're in the 70s. I couldn't put it down. Originally, he was called Gene Burroughs. He wasn't even Gene Hunt. As it turned out, they'd spent about five years trying to get it made, but nobody wanted it. Nobody. Now, do you know, I knew nothing about the series. I was looking at some tapes that you had loaned me, and I think they had one of the BBC One iDance where the kids are skateboarding. And the voiceover said, you've never seen anything like this, and we think you're going to love it. And something about his tone, it just made me really sit and watch this thing. And I didn't know John Sim at the time. And so I had zero idea of what was going to happen. And when I started pushing this on friends, I said, don't read anything about it. I'm not going to tell you a thing. It'll all become clear 10 minutes in. Just watch it. Because it was, it was kind of a neat way to not reading any press or knowing much about 
the Sweeney or what's going to happen. It was really nice to come fresh to this thing. Well, very often, because the way I get my tapes, I just put things in and I have no idea what they are. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes they're labeled, sometimes they're not. And everything will be just a mystery. And you get a lot of surprises that way. Mm Mm-hmm. I had friends in England who knew I was a big time travel fan and said, oh, you got to see Life on Mars. And so as soon as I got it, I, I started checking it out. And I was a little underwhelmed at the beginning, but I did quickly warm to it. Let's talk about the ways that we love Gene Hunt. I mean, you think he's a good character, don't you? Mm-hmm. Why do you find him interesting? Oh, he's big and loud and outgoing. So it's kind of always fun to go on journeys with people like that. Don't have to work too hard. You just enjoy it. He's very over the top, isn't mm-hmm. he? That's true. Well, I think he's one of the funniest characters on television. Like I say, one of my early complaints about Life on Mars was it took its rather outrageous premise, a time-traveling policeman, so incredibly seriously. I eventually realized that Sam Tyler, as played by John Sim, was not going to be the kind of character who cracked jokes or could laugh at the predicament that stranded him in the 1970s. But Gene Hunt could be the focal point for lightening the mood and providing a bit of comic relief, and Philip Glenister ran with it. Anybody who remembers actual police shows in the 1970s like The Sweeney or The Professionals often saw characters like Gene Hunt, the anti-hero who broke the rules and busted heads but got the job done. But for modern audiences watching these antics, Glenister's portrayal made all Hunt's bluster and put-downs hilarious instead of seeming fascist. Secondly, I think Gene Hunt was a good cop and a good boss. Even though there were times where he really wanted to kill Sam Tyler... He would often back Tyler's crazy, to him, ideas to solve a crime in a novel direction. Bottom line, he liked results and he was willing to think outside the box. Third, Gene Hunt could kick ass. We haven't had a lot of good ass kickery on TV for a while, or else it's confined to period dramas like Deadwood and, well, I suppose, Life on Mars. Gene was tough and he could dish it out and he could take it. He loved to punish bad guys, even though he wasn't always respectful of their civil rights. In an interview, Philip Glenester compared the character to Alf Garnett from Till Death Us Do Part, the British Archie Bunker, in that audiences could laugh at his ignorance and political incorrectness, although there was probably a small portion of them that didn't see any irony and was like, Yeah, you tell him! After two seasons, Life on Mars ended the Sam Tyler story, but Gene Hunt was too good a character to disappear as quickly. So plans were made for a sequel series set in the 1980s and transplanting Gene and his squad to London in Ashes to Ashes. Originally, I had hoped that it would be a straightforward cop drama series simply featuring Gene doing his thing, but the producers really liked the idea of a modern-day person interacting with the past, so Ashes to Ashes gave us a female police detective, Alex Drake, played by Keely Hawes, who must match wits with Hunt. Now, you're not a big fan of Keely Hawes, are you? No, never warmed to her. Oh. Well, I remember she was in the Deanna Dore story with Amanda Redmond, and she, of course, was in Mutual Friends, married to Mark Warren. I know, and her character was so nasty. I wanted to punch her in the nose. It's acting. I'm sure she's a lovely person in real life. Well, that's fine, but I didn't like watching it because you have to like the character to enjoy something, and I didn't really like any of the characters in that show. I was very sad Mark Warren chose that rather than more hustle, but I I guess he wanted something new. One aspect I liked in Ash to Ashes in the first season was that they made a plausible explanation of how Alex can know Gene Hunt and so many details about the past. Whereas Sam Tyler, as far as we know, created the entire experience out of whole cloth. Well, depending on your interpretation. 
I think Ashes to Ashes waters down its premise a bit. To me, the 80s aren't so that long ago. And just how many time-traveling coma patients can there be out there? We met at least one other one in the second season of Ashes to Ashes who became a brutal nemesis to Alex. Everyone thought the series would run just two seasons like its predecessor, but the decision was made to go for a third and final season, resulting in a cliffhanger in the season finale last year. Bolly. Balls. Bolly. Balls. Listen, I don't know if you can hear me, Balls. The nurses are going to be back in a minute. I need you to wake up. What about if I, I, I gave you a slap? Would that help? They think that I shot you. Well, I mean, I did shoot you, but they think that I shot you. They're after me, body kicks. Look, I am on the ruddy lamb here. I need you to wake up. Come on, snap out of that coma. Bolly. 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 Ashes to Ashes begins running on BBC One on Friday, April 2nd. In 2007, Philip re-entered the world of period drama as Mr. Carter in Cranford. What do you think? Does he wear those riding breeches well? I haven't seen Cranford. (laughs) And in a bid to separate himself a bit from the Gene Hunt character, Philip put on an American accent, to some criticism, in the supernatural series Demons, which ran earlier this year on BBC America. When this season of Ashes to Ashes is ended, Philip is looking forward to Life After Hunt, starting with Bellamy, a period drama based on the Guy de Maupassant novel. He's playing Uma Thurman's husband alongside Robert Pattison, Christina Ritchie, and Kristen Scott Thomas. Hmm. That's doing pretty well. Apparently, when the American remake of Life on Mars happened and they cast Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel called Philip Glenester on holiday and asked him how to play the part. <laughs> we have a link on our website to a pretty good interview with Philip Glenester, you know, promoting the series, but he talks about his career and things and it's a good read. So check that out. And fans of Hustle have seen Philip's brother, Robert Glenester as Ash in that series. And as far as I've been able to discover, they have not appeared on television together. So next week, we're going to look at the career of writer Stephen Moffat, now the new producer of Doctor Who, but also a long history of writing comedy and drama for British TV. So next week, Stephen Moffat. And a whole lot of things coming over Easter, both in the United States and in Britain. So get those DVRs ready. Meanwhile, we'd like you to go visit our website, www.britishtvpodcast.com. And there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and our archive of the past 24 episodes. Yeah, we're getting up there a bit. Next we have week champagne is... when we hit a year. we got to do something when we hit a year. Next week is our six-month anniversary. Yay. Wow. You can also send us some feedback at feedback at britishtvpodcast.com. 
you have any ideas or suggestions or corrections, send them along. So, Chrissy has now given me all of being human. I'm going to spend the week watching that, I hope, in my copious spare time. To enjoy. Cool. And we'll be back next week. We'll see you then. See you then. Thank you.